0: Welcome to the NSCHBC Edge Podcast, leading the way in the business of medicine. Now, here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the NSCHBC Edge Podcast. I'm your host, Terry Fletcher. The Edge Podcast is brought to you today by the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants. We are at episode 25 today, and as a once-a-month podcast, we have over 10,000 downloads since we started the Business of Medicine podcast over two years ago this week, so we're very excited to be here. This week on the EDGE podcast, I will welcome fellow NSCHBC member Bill Caligridis, who is a healthcare attorney and the chairman of Lamb McGarland's Health Law Department. Their offices are located in the Philadelphia PA area. Bill has been exclusively practicing health law and healthcare consulting for over 45 years, representing physicians, dentists, podiatrists, group practices, and other healthcare professionals and healthcare-related entities. Bill has significant experience negotiating co-ownership documents, such as shareholder agreements, operating agreements, and partnership agreements, employee contracts, non-competition clauses, and separation agreements. Bill also analyzes and negotiates physician agreements with hospitals and other organizations, including exclusive contracts, medical directorships, employment agreements, and there's just too much to continue on with. He also, also manages and arranges joint ventures, and he's also got some extensive experience with private equity firms and their integration into our healthcare system, which is very timely because our topic today, as inflation continues to rise and economic futures and healthcare can be uncertain. We really wanted to discuss physician and dentists who are being recruited or I should say lured into private equity firms to offer cash flow some relief and being told that their autonomy of private practice will still be intact, but we want to take a deeper dive into that because what I'm seeing and maybe what uh, Bill can talk to us about. Is the pros and cons of private equity arrangements and what to look for from a medical and dental group perspective when they come knocking? So, without further ado, Bill, welcome to a podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Terry. I look forward to participating. Really do. Well,
0: we it's a happy are happy
1: topic, and uh, I'm looking forward to it.
0: Well, we're happy to have you here. And it's interesting because private equity, or PE as they call it, continues to have a really strong interest in physician offices, physician practices, surgery centers, and other healthcare ventures. But for our listeners, I wanted to just give a quick background on what PE or private equity is at its core. And it's really an alternative investment class consisting of capital that is not listed on, let's say a public exchange, but it's also comprised of funds and investors that directly invest in private companies like a healthcare entity or a physician's practice. But from what I'm finding in PE firms, they're out to make money. They're out to maybe sell their stake in in what they invest in within three to five years for a substantial profit. And so I'm very confused or not I'm kind of surprised that they are interested in healthcare because it seems like the physicians Ooh. are more about long term unless you're a physician that is getting ready to retire in in some time or five years or so but in saying that i'm gonna ask the expert and really talk to you bill about what you think and so when you're looking at that medical and dental space and a private equity firm's goal is to increase business value what is their definition of value because i think it might be different than the physician
1: I I totally agree with that. And the doctors that we represent, when they're approached by somebody in the private equity realm or one of our doctor clients is saying, I'm not sure what I want to do next. I'm thinking about a transition plan. I'm tired of managing a practice, whatever it may be. And private equity may be one of the options they consider. The differences are that a lot of our clientele, uh, I'm more... Doctor focused, as I think you are, Terry, as well. My clientele is the doctor side, and a lot of them are used to running their own practices. You know, making what they make, making their decisions, uh, living with the highs and lows of a practice in private and private practice. But when they look at private equity, it's a different animal. Uh, those folks are generally looking at things from a dollars and cents standpoint. And that's what you have to recognize. And, and, and we do recognize and explain to our clients and saying, what is the benefit to me? What is their end goal? And we try to ask that question because some different private equity people have different goals as well. But most of them do what you said before a couple of minutes ago, that they're looking to flip a lot of these practices within a three to five year period. So they'll buy it, the private equity folks. They'll look at the economics and hope to sell it on to someone else down the road for some multiple of EBITDA, you know, type of thing. Uh, so that, that is definitely how the value, the way the PE folks generally look at it is they, they're buying it and they're looking to make money within a relatively short time window. The physician or dentist who's looking to possibly sell or be, become part of private equity Uh, He or she may have different goals, and that's why in each situation uh, we try to help them evaluate what their goals are, what the pros and cons of a particular option are, and then if we can do it, we try to have them at least consider uh, more than one option if possible uh, to understand the benefits and the non-benefits. Looking at it from an economic standpoint, uh, generally, if you look into dollars and cents, Private equity will tend to pay a pretty good purchase price, but then what they're going to do is pay the doctor uh, less in the way of current remuneration than he or she is probably used to making now, in effect, having the doctor buy himself or herself out. Uh, That's why a lot of the private equity deals we see, they want to employ the doctor for at least a three to five year period so they can build into their mathematical computations, uh, an ability to basically get their money back out in the sense of private equity folks themselves. So you have to balance that whole thing and looking at that from a purely economic standpoint.
0: So you, you mentioned a couple things that I, I wanted to comment on. And it's interesting because I, I like what you're saying as far as explaining it. And I think there may be some confusion out there as far as what pri- private equity is, is as, as it relates to healthcare. So here's a couple questions. So you mentioned purchase price. I think it seems like to me, just because of the questions I get from clients, they think that private equity means they're going to invest in their business, not necessarily buy their business. Is that, is that a misperception?
1: That's, that's a very good question. Generally, what I see is they're buying the practice you know, fully. That doesn't mean you can't have a joint venture I tend to see more of a joint venture when it's more like an ambulatory surgery center or, you know, GI uh, endoscopy center, something like that, where the doctors may have their private practice still, but they have a venture, you know, investment in an ASC, meaning a surgery center or a GI lab, let's say. And in those cases, I do tend to see more of the ability to have like a joint venture with the PE folks. Like most of the time, the practice is fully sold. You know, they don't become partners, excuse me, in that doctor's particular practice. The way that the doctor who may be selling or the doctors who may be selling the private equity may be able to retain some equity is a lot of times they're offered what they call rollover equity, meaning they would have the ability to get some of the purchase price, not all as cash or as a promissory note at the time of closing, but some percentage of it, let's say 20%, they don't get in current money, they get an equity in the buyer or a buyer affiliate.
0: Okay. Now question, and, and this is kind of a, this may be a, a novice question coming from somebody who's more in the revenue cycle management compliance and auditing field versus um, this part of the the business side of practices. But it seems like Doctors that are maybe thinking about retirement in three to five years, this would be actually not a bad deal for them, but the new physicians, isn't there a lot of options for funding for what they need as far as leases and equipment and, you know, and staffing? I'm not sure if this is a good idea for new new physicians, but I don't know. So I'll throw that back to
1: you. It's, it's a very good question. And, and maybe the best way to answer it is sometimes my client may be a medical practice or a dental practice with several owners. And the goals of each of these owners can be quite different. And you're right, the senior docs may be much more interested in transitioning out, quote unquote, cashing out, end quote. And that may cause them to, in a lot of cases, be more in favor of going for the highest purchase price uh, today. Uh, The younger doctors may or may not have the same goals, as you said, because what happens when you sell your practice, uh, you're gonna get paid less on an ongoing basis most of the time, almost all the time. Uh, the way I try to describe it to my clients is if you own your own practice, you're getting paid two different ways. Uh, you're getting up paid as an owner, meaning if there's a profit, and there's no guarantee of a profit, but if there's a profit, you make that money, We are also hopefully getting paid as what I like to call a worker B. So you're, you're getting paid what a non-owner physician or dentist would earn. If you're selling a private equity or a hospital or any other bigger organization where you're not the equity owner, you're going to be paid more as the worker B type person. And if, if somebody's younger and they have another whatever, 20 years of practice to go, and assuming that you know, they're not going to be able to get out of this arrangement easily. And we'll talk about that a little bit, too. We talk about pros and cons. Basically, in that situation, they're going to not be maximizing their current earnings the way they would, I think, in their own practice, if they do well in their own practice.
0: What's interesting is I've noticed that a lot of physicians and dental practices that jump into this usually... I don't want to say they're. It's kind of out of desperation, but there's usually some red ink on their books, and somebody's throwing cash at them, saying, "Oh, look, we can, you know, now make put you in the black, and you have, you know, this money now. You can spend on new equipment or innovation or staffing or whatever you need." But I'm wondering how does that work as far as, like you said, if if you're if you're tied to a, a, a private equity firm or somebody who is, and I'm air quoting, has purchased or given you that, that capital to kind of take over your business, do they still have, I guess, right of decision-making or is that now also transferred to the PE firm?
1: And most of the time, uh, the decision-making goes to the, to the owner, you know, whoever that owner may be. Let's say private equity in this case. So. Again, that doesn't mean I've never seen a situation where they do buy a practice and don't agree that this doctor is a very good manager, as well as being a good doctor, and allow that individual to have certain managerial uh, roles or responsibilities. I'll give you one example. We recently had a dermatology practitioner who a super successful practice Private, a particular private equity firm wanted to move into that particular market and they viewed this doctor as a good draw to maybe get other people in dermatology and subspecialties of dermatology to join them slash the senior doctor, or am sorry, the initial selling doctor's practice because of his reputation. So that's an unusual thing. That's not usually what happens. Usually right. they come in, they buy, And unfortunately, you know, in a lot of cases, they're gonna then tell you what supplies to use and they're gonna tell you, you know, what they want you to do about personnel, et cetera. A lot of this is really gonna be dictated by what's in the agreements. That's why, you know, my opinion, it's very important what the agreements say. And a lot of it's nitty gritty stuff, but I like to deal with nitty gritty stuff because if you don't, I may get a call a month later, six months later, saying, I didn't know they could do this to me.
0: Yeah. That's uh, yeah, It's like a, it's kind of like buying a house without doing your inspection.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it, it, it could be something like where they could tell you to work. It can be something like who, who decides who's going to join this subgroup. Right. In the way of doctors. Uh, so it. If that's important, and this is why going through it with the particular client and saying, let's talk about the pros and cons, let's talk about what's important to you, and are you going to be happy, for example, if this other outside outfit now comes in and decides who you're going to work with, for example?
0: Yeah. So I have a, a kind of an interesting question, kind of a sidebar question that we hadn't really kind of gone over and it just kind of popped into my head with the, some of the stuff that I'm doing. So, you know, about the No Surprises Act and you know yes. all, all that stuff. So one of the things that I actually got a call from a private equity firm about a year ago. And they wanted me to work with them on making sure that they could collect these exorbitant fees and they wanted to, you know, go to, um, court and, and sue the payer. And I was just like, Whoa, 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 no, I'm not going to be a part of that because I'm understanding of contracting. And, you know, I know how things work as far as Medicare and commercial plans, and you just can't get that crazy. And it just kind of occurred to me now with the no surprise act and patients, having kind of a say in what they're going to pay either out of network or in-network. Is that affecting any of the PE firms? Because I think sometimes they look at pie in the sky, you know, you don't have to be an in-network physician and look what we can collect from everybody else. And now that's changed.
1: Well, I think that's a good question. I think the way I like the answer is this, I think you're right that they sometimes don't understand medicine. Some of them do and some don't they're looking at the purely numbers people and they've gone into maybe the dental field or the medical field because they like the numbers. Um, And if they all of a sudden realize maybe it's not that easy right now, or maybe this is a practice with a lot of insured people or that doesn't have insured people, but now we have to explain to people what they're going to get charged that can impact their projections and what they're willing to pay. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. Uh, They do tend to, like to buy a lot of the more private pay type practices. And for example, dermatology, I keep bringing that up. There are a lot of dermatologists that I've seen being taken over by private equity because a lot of them do a lot of cosmetic work uh, and are able to therefore, you know, bill outside of any insurance. Again, with something like the No Surprises Act, they're going to have to make sure they explain all that to the patient. And so there are no surprises, quote unquote, as far as that goes. But uh, I think that's that's a good question.
0: Well, and, and it's fairly new. It just kind of popped in my head thinking, you know, you, you might want to rethink a couple things. But on the positive side, I mean, I know I feel like I've kind of been a little, not negative, but just thinking, is this really a good idea? But when you look at the positive of private equity, I know that there's a lot of physicians out there, even though it's rare to find a physician who also has that entrepreneur understanding of business. And that's not, that's not saying anything that most physicians don't want to be that way. I just don't think they learn it in school first well, before they come out. But it seems like a lot of physicians want to focus really on clinical issues and kind of push the administration part of it and management to another firm. So this seems like that would be a win for them. The only caveat I see is a lot of physicians include family in their practice as far as personnel?
1: Uh, The big thing there, and I know what I tell these clients, especially if they have been used to running their own practice, being their own bosses, so to speak, is now you're not going to be the boss in 99% of these deals unless you can somehow define something or create something that gives you more WA and more decision-making than usually you'll find. And that can be tough to take, you know, uh, for some people. Uh, Maybe less so than it used to be. I mean, when I first started in practice, everybody was (laughs) a solo practitioner, basically.
0: Right, right. And they had
1: the spouse working in the office, and the kids were, you know, there's less of that now, but there are some for sure
0: out there. There's a lot out
1: there, Uh, yeah. Especially you see it a lot in dentistry, but in medicine too. But a lot more in dentistry because you have a lot of one and two doctor type practices, but. I think at the end of the day, I always tell them, you're not really going to get rid of the headache totally. You are because you're not going to be the person getting the call, theoretically at least, to say, well, you know, the roof leaked or this happened or that happened. Theoretically, somebody else is going to take care of that. But that isn't always the case. You're still the local person uh, in that particular facility or location that may or may not get the call anyway. You may not have the authority to do much about it, but you may, may still get caught about it type of thing. But then you can get frustrated if somebody's now telling you what they want, that maybe you don't want to do.
0: Now, do the PE firms, are they do they seem to have more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, more, not authority, but I guess more influence, there we go, with some of the payers to be able to get on panels and you know get on some different... Um, you know, get better rates with, with certain payers, uh, better EMR, you know, rates and things like that? Do they, do they work towards, towards that kind of thing?
1: It depends. I mean, a lot of them do not, frankly, in my opinion, I think the ones that do uh, are ones that are super specialized and do make that a focus. And perhaps even though the private equity do really have more doctors in charge you know what I'm saying, not just business people running the show. And in those cases, again, if you have sort of a single specialty focused PE outfit, which is not what all of them are, you know, there are some out there, let's say an ophthalmology or dermatology or whatever, GI, OBGYN, you know, if they're single focused, there may be a way to do something, but I've not seen a whole lot of great success because they may not be concentrated enough in a particular area or in a particular uh, area of specialty. Uh, doesn't mean it can't happen. I do think it can help if they plan well and think well on the supply side mm-hmm. in the sense of what they can purchase, maybe group purchasing, maybe on EMR costs, things like that, but that's making them money, which is fine, but that's they're the owner now and they're doing it so they can benefit And that's why they're willing to buy the practice, perhaps, uh, for the price they want to pay.
0: So when a private equity firm comes to a physician or a physician practice, because obviously they're not going to the attorneys. Now the physician's got to get their attorney involved and figure out, unless they are. I mean, I could be wrong about that. General rule,
1: yes. Yeah,
0: that's what I figured. Now, what your advice, so, you know, for the physicians that are listening in, for the administrators, you got a private equity firm that's coming to your practice, the physicians, either a group or single practitioner is saying, you know what, I really need some funding, not saying I'm drowning here, but we do still have some physicians that are post COVID pandemic still, you know, dealing with that shutdown. And now they have somebody coming in with with cash to free them up and help with some of the things they want to move into. Um, what do you recommend first to engage in someone like yourself so that you can read the fine print before they jump in?
1: Well, let me start. I I, I do. Uh, and, and for a lot of reasons. You know, one reason is make sure I tell my clients this all the time. Too often, somebody will call me after the fact a little bit and They've already done some talking to the potential buyer or buyers and maybe even shared some information. And I think before, you know, a good piece of advice for anybody listening here is before you share any information on your practice, any confidential information, numbers, you know, data on whatever, zip code analysis, whatever, that you have the other party sign a non-disclosure agreement, uh, meaning they are agreeing not to use any of that information not to disclose any of it to anybody else, to only use it for purposes of this negotiation, and to return everything if at the end of the day, the deal doesn't happen. And the other thing that I I, I get concerned about, whether it's in private equity or any transaction, I even see it with young doctors uh, looking to sign their first employment agreement, especially big potential buyers or employers, whether they're private equity or hospitals or whatever, They try to get the doctor or group to sign what they call a letter of intent. Uh, And they say, well, it's not legally binding, just sign it. And and that could be a real mistake because sometimes there's something in that document that basically binds you, maybe not to do the sale, but at a minimum keeps you from talking to anybody else for some reason. Again, I'm giving you a broad brush here, but I, a lot of times people can sign things or have the other party think they have sort of agreed to certain things that maybe they didn't think they agreed to or weren't agreeing to, but maybe they did. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a safety mechanism, in my opinion, to have it, things looked at before you sign anything.
0: I would agree. Well, and, you know, the other thing, there's an old adage, or if it sounds too good to be true, it's, it's it probably is. So Correct. If somebody's saying, oh, we're going to, you know, give you this million, two million dollars, and it's, you know, it doesn't necessarily come without certain strings attached. I mean, nobody just gives that kind of money away.
1: Without a doubt. And a lot of times that's, that's the big attraction here in the big purchase price number. But then you got to think about, like we said before, what your compensation is going to be in the interim. It'll more than likely be substantially less than it is now if they're buying the practice because they want you to help fund the purchase. And that's what business people do. They're they're getting rid of you as an owner and want to pay you as a worker bee, uh, which is where they have the money from which to pay the purchase price type of thing.
0: Now, I've noticed that when this is being done on an ASC or office based lab or an independent facility type situation, they've been pretty successful. How successful have you seen it uh, in the private practice or dental practice sector?
1: Well, I mean, when you say, I think it can be successful. I mean, okay. it, it's a function. I mean, again, and from whose perspective, I guess.
0: Right, yeah. I mean,
1: the, the, the one thing, if, okay, let me step back. It can be successful, and I think if and when someone is evaluating possibly doing something with a potentially big buyer like a PE outfit, I would try to find out who else they've done it with and get to talk to those folks uh, and see if it's you know, what's happened is what they thought would happen type of thing. That's still no guarantee it'll happen with you, but at least we'll see if they have a track record or not. You just uh, brought up a they, great
0: point. Can they ask for that? Can they ask for the PE track record I, or a referral?
1: I would. That's I, great. I, I never even thought time. of that.
0: That's great. Yeah, I mean,
1: and if they don't want to give it, you know, fine, but you may say that causes me concern. Yeah,
0: that's a yeah. deal breaker. It's
1: just like yeah. somebody asking you for a client reference. Right. You know, so. yeah. Right.
0: Okay. Okay. So I guess, I guess successful is, is kind of perception and, you know, success on the physician side, you know, they're not buried in red ink anymore. They're able to maybe upgrade their EMR. They're able to get a little bit more staffing. They're, 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 you know, they've had maybe a um, release of some of the administrative burden and now it's been shifted, but I would say maybe the, the negative part is they've lost their autonomy a little bit. They're back to being Kind of an employee situation, and may not have as much decision making. Would, would that be fair?
1: Right, and I, I probably should have answered a little more in depth with your question, and I will do that. In the sense that, yeah, what is success? I mean, if you're comfortable that there's potential here of what they're going to do, meaning what the private equity folks are going to do, then you may be willing to take a chance and have some of that rollover money go into an investment in the PE company. Uh, and, and it doesn't always work successfully. You know, uh, a lot of times it does, and it's a question of how good that PE outfit is, meaning let's say you set aside 100000 of the purchase price and invest it in the PE outfit or their affiliate. Uh, Again, will, will that money go away? I tell people the safe answer is just assume you're throwing it away and hope you get something. And in some cases, they do very well. So I can't say that it's never successful at all. Uh, we just had one that we, again, you're seeing it now two, three, four years down the road, and then this one particular one we just finished, meaning finished the second wave, uh, the private equity firm that bought my client's practice is now selling to another private equity firm, and my client did or a 100,000 investment is now 400,000, so it worked out in that case. So we can't say it's always going to be that way, but it did work out there. So you have to balance what kind of risk you're willing to take uh, and and go from there. I think the ASCs and things like that, again, those are more going to end up being joint ventures. Right. I keep going back to that, like when you say, well, then better EMR, better staffing. That's potentially going to happen, but if it does, you don't own it. You're, you're just working there at that point in most cases in a medical practice for dental practice, unless you negotiate something different. So you're going to retain some equity.
0: Bill, what have you seen? And I mean, you may not know this answer this question, but I know we're talking about how this is, you know, affects the physician, how, you know, what the role of the private equity firm is here, but have you heard, or I'm sure you have, what is the feedback you've gotten or what is, I guess the positive or negative and how this is affecting patients as a, as a whole?
1: Okay, the negatives I hear, and it's not in every case, that's, we have to be specific here, because some people do a good job, and some don't, some private equity may be more doctor-oriented, and others may not be. You know, others may be totally dollars and cents, totally business people just investing in something to make money. Others may have much more of a doctor focus, because doctors are really running the shell. maybe not our clients, per se, but doctors that set up the private equity in the first place in dermatology, in ophthalmology, in OBGYN or whatever. And they're doing it for, for good reasons, quote unquote, and not just dollars and cents. And those guys may be doing it, and wanting to retain you know, ownership for a period of time and not necessarily flip it right away. Uh, so you got that going on there as well. Uh, I, again, I think the big thing there is what exactly you know, is gonna make you comfortable. The ones that are successful, hopefully patients will be a focal point. That's important to our clients. In a lot of these situations, doctors begin to feel maybe that isn't the focal point. I had a dental one recently that my client was very unhappy uh, because he felt that they were telling him he couldn't use certain labs, he couldn't use certain supplies. And I think the outfit that ended up taking over his practice Uh, really controlled a lot of it. Maybe they even had an ownership interest in some of those things. So they were telling them where they had to go and what they had to use. Not necessarily thinking about the patient, not necessarily giving the dentist, in this case, uh, the right uh, to say, I want to use XYZ lab that I've used for the last 20 years. So the negatives are, it's possible you're not going to have the the same uh, patient focus that you'd like to have. Not in every case, believe me, that's what we have to be careful because some of them are good. Some of them are not so good.
0: So when you say patient-focused, you're more about extra ancillary services that cost money, basically, that take out of the profits.
1: Uh, it's it's that, but I think even the quality of supply or materials oh, or yeah. you know, maybe not as much enough staff sometimes. So I have heard this. the
0: staffing issue has been been a little bit challenging uh, when you engage in a PE because they believe that, you know, one staff can be three staff if you do it correctly. And it's just sometimes that obviously can affect the, the entire practice from a patient perspective. Yeah. So let me shift a little bit to dental groups, because I know you said that you've got, you know, a lot of experience there. What are they seeing in that kind of space? And, and this is going to be a funny question, but when do you try and talk the client out of the PE opportunity?
1: Well, again, there are pros and cons to, to all these things. And the first thing, when a client comes to me and says, either A, I'm not sure what I want to do next, uh, here are, what are my options as far as my practice, as far as my transition to my practice, uh, between private equity or selling to another dentist or bringing a partner on board, associate into partnership, you, you look at the pros and cons of the whole thing. and we try to explain to them a what you're going to be giving up in the se- sense of management and uh, the sense of control. That's those are a couple of the things to start with. And is that important to you, client X? And that's number one. Number two, yes, you probably will get a pretty good purchase price, more than you probably would get from another doctor, let's say. And definitely more in a medical situation than you'd get from a hospital in 99% of the cases. But they're going to do it by paying you a whole lot less money. as I said before. So sometimes it just doesn't make sense. And the economics at the end of the day, even though you get hit with it, I'm going to pay $2 million for my practice or whatever. Right. But then what's going to happen after that? You know, who's going to make your decisions? Who's going to make you do certain things maybe you don't want to do? Or if you don't, you know. You, you may decide you want to leave. The other part of it, and we, we need to talk about this, and again, it depends on where, where your practice is located, uh, is non-competition, non-solicitation and restrictions. In other words, once you sell your practice or you're working for somebody else, assuming it's allowed in that particular state, they're going to want to restrict you because part of what they're buying is your goodwill, quote-unquote, your intangible value. And they lose that if you could just open up across the street, you know, six months after you bought they bought the practice. So when you go into it, you have to say, what if it doesn't work out? And what if you're not happy or, you know, type of thing? What are you going to have to do? Well, if you have a non-compete, that's a valid one. You know, either A, you're going not have to move because they paid you for it. Or B, maybe there's a way to buy it back out, you know, whatever, that kind. So that, that's another, quote, possibly talking out of it situation. Uh, the biggest thing, I think, a lot of times it's money, but a lot of times it's more than just money. It's okay. going to be compatible with my thinking and what the practice can be and do. And that's why a lot of my clients that have been happy at the end of the day doing a big transaction like this have joined, you know, bigger outfits that are PE oriented, because, that are more doctor controlled and doctor run water times. So that's a couple of the
0: things. So you basically are kind of hand holding through the process and saying, Okay, so let's sit down and look at the pros and cons and not just the, the upfront, you know, cash infused into the practice and what you can do, it's you've got to kind of project and see what if it doesn't work out? What if it's something that you want to get out of? And where does this leave you in, in three to five years, right?
1: Right. And the cash infusion, again, if they're buying your practice, the money's going to go to the seller. So it's not going to really go into the practice per se. It's going to be, I'm selling my practice for 2 million, let's say, or whatever, okay. but you're right. The rest of it is correct. You know, what's going to happen once I'm working there uh, while I'm working there. And what if I'm really unhappy? What, what are my options at that point? How restricted am I? And again, it's common sense in a lot of ways, and we sometimes don't want to believe it, but what's your gut feel about these people? <laughs> you yeah, know, oh, I agree. Times. Do you want to work it's like, with well, them. I can't stand yeah. these guys no matter how much you are going to pay me uh, because I don't trust them. Or I just don't have a good vibe.
0: Right. Uh,
1: so a lot of it's a feel issue, too. Uh, yeah, like you said, they're too good to be true or just they don't seem to really understand medicine or dentistry. Uh, and just doing it because it's a good place to make a buck for them.
0: Well, that is just great information and great insight. And do you have any last comments for our listeners as far as if they get that call, what would you say the first step is?
1: I think the the first thing is not to share any information and not to sign anything until they've talked to somebody like me or another person like me because you don't want to accidentally let's say or unintentionally bind yourself to anything i think that's number one uh because a lot of times hey, it's not a big deal it's not legally binding What? what do i lose well people come to me after the fact too often and say i signed this thing but it's not binding anyway so now i'm ready to get serious <laughs> and i look You're at like, it and say okay well, yeah you want to bet i mean <laughs> you know you thought you saved a few hundred bucks not having somebody look at it but you know, what it says here is that you can't talk to anybody else.
0: Right. You're locked in.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh my goodness.
0: I get this. I get very similar things with, with clients as well. Well, we'd like to thank you, Bill, for being on our podcast today. And we definitely appreciate your expertise and financial insights. in this very timely topic. So thank you for being here.
1: It was my pleasure, Terry. And thank you for inviting me.
0: You can reach Attorney Bill Calagres at NSCHBC.org, go to the Find a Consultant tab and type in his first name, which is actually Vasilios, but we know him as Bill, those of us that love him. So you can also use that search and if he comes right up, you can also find his information at www.lammcarlane.com. And again, we'd wanted to thank Bill for joining us today. And as a reminder to our listeners, our monthly free webinar series, our next one is November 16th, where the NSCHBC member and consultant, Christy Crow, will also be giving her insight via webinar on private equity realities and what providers can expect in the long term. Also, a reminder that the NSCHBC Winter Workshop, which is a consultants' retreat conference, will be held in Phoenix, Arizona area, January 12th, 13th, 2023, and registration is now open. Go to the NSCHBC.org and click on our upcoming education page and you'll find the link there. Also of note, join me for our next Medicare quarterly update webinar for the fourth quarter, that is December 20th, where I'll be bringing you all the rules, regulations, and not to mention the final rule and physician fee schedule information as we head into 2023. We hope you register today. Well, folks, that's it for us. Make it a great day, a great rest of your month. And thank you for listening to the NSCHBC Edge podcast. We'll see you next month. Thank you for listening to the NSCHBC Edge podcast. Join us on the second Tuesday of each month as our consultants tackle the complexities of navigating the business of medicine. You can reach us on the web at NSCHBC.org, the
1: National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants.